Welcome to the X Overland Podcast. At X Overland, we're committed to living a life of adventure and to sharing what we learn in the hopes of inspiring and empowering others to boldly explore the world. Join the conversation as we sit down to share stories of overland travel and vehicle-based adventure with a broad range of compelling guests from around the globe. Welcome back to the X Overland Podcast, everyone. I'm very excited to have Dr. John Solberg on the podcast today. Uh, this is the second time he's been on the podcast. The first episode, you want to check that out. It's all about wilderness medicine for vehicle-based adventure, overlanding, outdoor adventure of all kinds. Uh, Dr. John has myriad credentials. We will put them in the show notes. He can speak to some of those himself. Um, but he's been an ER physician for years, um, a specialist in wilderness medicine. The man really knows his stuff. And he has just come back from Africa with the Exoberland team in which he was serving as team doctor for that expedition. John, welcome back to the podcast. So glad to have you here. Thanks, Jimmy. Great to be here. So Africa, man, you just got back here, what, two, three weeks ago? Not even? Yeah. First time? Uh, it's my second time to the continent. I was there uh, for a couple of months in Cameroon uh, several years ago and worked at a uh, jungle hospital, but that was kind of all in the same place. And that was, of course, in a medical facility. So this is bet this is my first time uh, out in the bush with a group. I know you know you you've been on an expedition with us before the Alaska expedition. Mm -hmm. um, let's just begin there. Maybe how like when you got tapped uh, by Claire Michelle to be team doctor for this mm -hmm. expedition to Africa. What what was going through your mind? Like how was Af seeing Africa? different from Alaska for something like this and being a team doctor? Well, Alaska is pretty remote, but it's still, you know, the infrastructure is still part of the developed world. And uh, there are some stretches there in Africa that are uh, pretty remote and even any kind of an evacuation really isn't to, isn't to any kind of care like you would get uh, in Alaska. So there was a little bit more trepidation uh, in my heart and, uh, you know, in Alaska, you get some trauma and things like that, but there's really not a, a lot of uh, uh, endemic disease that's there because it's cold. But when you travel uh, in equatorial regions and, uh, uh, you know, in Africa, and especially as you move farther north towards the Zambezi River there on the northern end of Botswana, there are uh, some endemic things that just kind of live there. Uh, malaria and other things that live in the water that make me a little nervous because, the ability to diagnose things like that really uh, is tricky in those areas. So I was a little bit nervous. I, I, I you know, I still kind of have my fingers crossed that everybody comes home safely. I know part of the crew is still there and I'm just uh, anxiously awaiting to hear that they get home and they have about two week, a two week period to make sure they're okay and they don't get sick with any illness. And uh, then I'll breathe a sigh of relief. You know, let's let's dig a little more into the endemic disease part, right? Like, in, in just parts of the world, say, because yeah, you've you've also been on an expedition with Clay and uh, Scott Brady uh, to Greenland uh, to the ice cap, right? Very different kind of place from an equatorial region. But what parts of the world are you worried about that kind of thing? Yeah, I mean. You know, it's, it's equatorial areas between the Tropic of Cancer and Tropic of Capricorn. And the closer and closer you get to the equator, 
Um, even here, you know, in northern Montana, North Dakota, we're at the 49th parallel. Uh, you know, every once in a while we get a viral encephalitis or something here that's transmitted by uh, mosquitoes. Or, of course, you know, if you drink the water that lives out in our streams, you can get sick with some, you know, uh, salmonella or cryptosporidium or things like that. But uh, the mosquito-borne illnesses are really uh, the things that you worry about uh, when you travel in the tropics. So in that case, I mean, we were really lucky. Clay uh, and Rochelle planned it really well. It's a great time to travel there because it was the dry season. We didn't see very many mosquitoes at all. Um, wow. It was really difficult to remember to take malaria prophylaxis at all because there just weren't many bugs. Um, you know, we treated all of our stuff with permethrin uh, before we left uh, and, you know, in kind of anticipation of their being some bugs, but uh, it was just a great time to travel, sit around the campfire at night in shorts and a t-shirt and, uh, you know, not swat any bugs. It's amazing. Yeah. So now I, I hear like, you know, here's part of a, a strategy is if, if you're heading to these equatorial regions uh, or certainly, you know, to Africa in this case, time of year, you know, is there a wet season? Is there a dry season? Paying attention to that is one way you can reduce the chance of dealing with a mosquito-borne illness just because there aren't as many mosquitoes around. Yeah, for sure. And, you know, even when you do this kind of stuff, you still make mistakes like that. Like it was, uh, it was colder there than I had anticipated in my mind. And in fact, there was a couple nights early on where I had on almost every layer of clothing I brought along. And my sleeping bag was on the lower end of the spectrum. I, I was really lucky that the boys had brought along a couple of these extra down throws because I was so cold. In fact, in Johannesburg, it snowed the day after we left, which is almost unheard of. I heard, I heard that story, like something like that. But, but that being said, I mean, you know... Uh, one night uh, early on in the trip, I mean, we were sitting around the campfire and it was getting almost too cold to sit out there and uh, retired to my tent. And I unfolded the big Michelin uh, map, roadmap of Africa that I brought along. And here I'd scribbled some notes on the back. And there's the temperature graph, you know, by the month that I had drawn in my own pen, low of 45, average high of 75. Come on. And I didn't, you know, I didn't bring along a warm enough jacket. So, I mean, even when you make the best plans, it, it was really difficult to, before the expedition, think, hey, we're going on safari to Africa. We need to bring a winter coat. You know? so, well, yeah, that would have been the last thought in my mind until you guys actually went. And I heard this rumor of the snow in Johannesburg. Yeah. So it, finally, like it just never clicked with me with Africa that you're also dealing with the Southern Hemisphere phenomenon. Yeah. And especially when you're down there on the South Tip. And I'm sitting here, I've been doing all this moving around on camera because I'm looking, I have a, a world map up on my wall and I'm yeah. looking at like the south tip of Africa relative to South America and just kind of like getting that hemispheric seasonal difference in my mind. And yeah, yeah I was like, oh, I think I get it. You know, it's summer here and Clay and Rochelle plan this to be in the South African winter, um, probably a wise thing. But it just was shocking to me when everybody was talking about it being so cold, right? Every African piece of footage I've ever seen is like bush yeah. shorts and uh, uh, tilly hats and, you know, sunshine and sunburns. Yeah. 
So I'm sure you were quite surprised. Pretty surprised and a little bit embarrassed too. <laughs> I was almost, almost underdressed, but not quite. Well, you are from North Dakota. So I imagine that that helped, you know, just to, just that kind of inner strength. I couldn't complain outwardly anyway. <laughs> so in Africa, I think this is important to look at too, like maybe get a little more nuanced here. Uh, if you're thinking of traveling to Africa for um, overlanding adventure or what have you, outdoor remote stuff, it, it's a huge continent. And you have an equatorial zone. And then in the north, you have more of a desert area, right? And, um, and then down south, I'm not even sure how to describe that part of the continent. How would you describe that compared to, say, the equatorial region? Yeah, it reminded me a lot of uh, of uh, El Paso, uh, Tex Western Texas, with uh, some you know rolling hills and kind of scrubby, hard scrabble trees, um, you know, sagebrush and things like that, yeah. uh, as well as uh, you know furry animals that run around in the desert. Uh, just tons and tons of animals. I think that's probably why it's such a popular, uh, you know, hunting safari destination. I think it attracts the same kind of people that enjoy uh, hunting the Texas backcountry, hill country. Yeah. You know, yeah, two, two, two to 3,000 uh, feet above sea level, probably. Okay. Yeah. Yeah, that checks out. I think of all the, you know, big game farms in Texas, too, that where it's legal to bring exotic animals over and, yeah. you know, these ranches, that it makes sense why they're able to do okay there, I suppose. Yeah. So, okay. So time of year, you know, trying to go during a time of year when mosquitoes, there are fewer of them around simply because there's less water, standing water, that sort of thing. But it's still a concern. You're still going to make all the preparations that you need to, to be prepared for these kind of endemic mosquito-borne illnesses. So what did you guys do stateside to prepare? Yeah, uh, you know, there's some research you get on the uh, State Department website. It has a website for every country where we have an embassy. Uh, and, you know, the World Health Organization and CDC have a, a plethora of information on health concerns and for travelers. And so, you know, Clay and I had visited a couple of times before we left. Everybody agreed to, you know, visit their family doctor, make sure their immunizations were in order. And a lot, a lot of times it's difficult to obtain some of these things from a family doc. And so usually, you know, a population center of you know, 50,000 people is in the U.S. is going to have some kind of uh, either travel clinic or state health department or county health department that can advise you. And really what they're going to do is, they probably got a travel nurse that's going to go to those same websites and look up what the recommendations are for each of those countries. So, you know, we all did that, exchanged some emails, uh, got our immunizations, and then everybody made their own choice on what to take for malaria. Uh, there's several different options, and uh, that's the health preparation. Okay. So I do, you know, this is a, a nuanced episode where we're really looking into, right, the details of this. Yeah. So what would be the kind of immunizations, um, you know, vaccines that you would want to get or even need to get to be traveling to Africa? Yeah. Uh, if you're going to go, you got to be sure you check your country <clears throat> on the CDC website. So, you know, take, right. take, take what I say for, for granted uh, or, you know, take it at face value. I guess we should say you still need to go and verify um, yellow fever. 
uh, is one that is a, a lifetime vaccination. Now, many years ago, it used to be good for 10 years, but uh, yellow fever is a virus that's uh, transmitted by mosquitoes. And as you, uh, it's not required in South Africa or Botswana, but as soon as you cross the border up into uh, Zambia or uh, Namibia or Angola uh, or uh, uh, Zimbabwe, uh, you're going to need a yellow fever vaccine. And also it's tricky because if you are flying to Africa and you're going through an airport that's in a yellow fever zone, you also need to have it. So let's say you flew through Nairobi on the way there or some other place in equatorial Africa. Even if you just have a brief layover, they're not going to let you in those countries if you've come from a yellow fever uh, endemic country. But for those of us traveling from the U.S., you didn't have to have that. Most of us had already had it from other travels. Um, you know, uh, what else? Um, let's see, you're going to want to make sure your, your, you know, tetanus shot and your measles, mumps, rubella and polio, and all those are up to date. Uh, typhoid is a, uh, vaccine preventable disease now. So you can get the typhoid vaccine. And then wow. another consideration for folks is what to do about rabies. Rabies, uh, is endemic in some of the mammals that are there dogs included and a lot of most of them are not immunized for it and that is one discussion that clay and i had is you know if you, if you get bitten by a dog petting the friendly dog in the village and then the question to me is what do you do next you got to go travel to an area that has the ability to treat you for rabies because there's there's no known cure for it and people who are going to those areas who are uh you know bound and determined to touch the wildlife and pet the dogs, or maybe they're working in some kind of a research environment, then you can get the rabies series before you go and then you're okay. But for most of us, you know, it takes a couple of shots to, to get it done and it's, you know, it's uncomfortable and it costs a little bit of money and sometimes health insurance won't pay for it. So your best bet for the average traveler is just don't pet the dogs. <laughs> yeah. Uh, what about the hepatitis stuff? Um, it's reasonable to get uh, uh, the, the hepatitis vaccines as well. Healthcare workers, a lot of times, will have already had uh, hepatitis B. Uh, and uh, I think there's a hepatitis A vaccine as well. A lot of those things are, those are transmitted by uh, fecal, oral, and food. So you just want to be sure you cook your food really well ahead of time. And then, you know, some of them, like hepatitis C, and I think B as well, might be uh, transmitted sexually and by bloodborne routes as well. So if you're, uh, you know, if you're going to be exposed to those type of things, then you're going to want to make sure you have those as well. Are these, you know, the vaccines, like I, my eyes, eyebrows raised a few times there and that just knowing there's something like a typhoid vaccine, uh, the yellow fever vaccine, um, and they're, they're fairly effective in your yep. opinion. They're pretty good. And now uh, does do those cover malaria in any way? What are we dealing with when we're talking about malaria? Because you mentioned there are lots of options as far as how to how to yeah. approach your preventative malaria treatment. Yeah, we could do a whole podcast on malaria, and you know, uh, physicians will do entire courses on tropical disease where they spend weeks and weeks and weeks, if not doing an entire fellowship, studying things like malaria. But you know, the bottom line is that it's a parasite that uh, you know gets in your red blood cells. And it lives in a life cycle between uh, mosquitoes and humans. And depending on which part of the world you go to, malaria is resistant to different medicines. And so you have to be sure that you uh, are taking the one that's recommended for the area that you're traveling. 
you know, in area of the continent that we were in, doxycycline is pretty effective. Uh, Malarone uh, is one of them that works. Uh, and then, you know, the most important thing is, you know, prevention. Treating your clothes with permethrin is really effective. If you're going to be out at night in areas where there are a lot of mosquitoes wearing a head net, um, we did stay a couple of like hostel hotel type places that had bed nets available for us. And going indoors after night when the mosquitoes come out, uh, if you do all that stuff, you're probably pretty safe. Okay. Yeah. Cause that, it, that's what I've heard. You know, some of the wilderness medicine podcasts and whatnot I've listened to on the subject is you know, do everything you can to prevent getting bitten, which, you know, sounds kind of, I just think of like an equatorial region or anywhere where there are a lot of mosquitoes. And I think, Oh my gosh, how do you, how do you do that? But you know, the, the methods you just outlined, if you're disciplined about them, you know, you're talking about reducing the odds. Yeah, you do. And then, you know, as a, as a healthcare provider or a professional, the other thing is not having too much pride, you know, uh, in your ability to diagnose things in the field. Uh, you know, if you get a fever in a malaria endemic area, it's, it's malaria until proven otherwise, but there are other things, you know, dengue fever and things like that, chikungunya and um, that, that need to be ruled out as well. And really it takes a medical facility to be able to do that. There are probably some point of care tests that you could have, but they only test for, you know, one or two specific things. And so going, you know, if you get sick and you got a fever there, you just got to get to a healthcare facility and get somebody who knows the area to, to help you. There, there's, there's nothing like local intel in a situation like that. And here in the States, you know, we try to go to a physician or somebody who's been to advanced medical training for diagnoses. But in those parts of the country, a lot of those services are provided by health nurses or people like that, that are really pretty experienced. So, so, okay. That's, that's an important point. And are, is that fairly accessible from what you saw where you traveled in Africa? Yeah, you have, to, you have to be a little bit careful about saying go to the local doctor because a uh, doctor there carries sometimes can carry a different meaning than here. Okay. You know, a lot of uh, small villages and remote places will still do things like uh, um, cupping and, uh, you know, there's uh, spiritual beliefs and things like that that people will call the local doctors as well. So, you know, your best bet if you need uh, healthcare in a foreign country like that is to get, you know, get on the state U S state department website and they have a list of local doctors that are available. They don't recommend any one over the other, but that is one thing that we did do, uh, was go to the state department website and look at each country and write down and even go as far as putting in the GPS coordinates for some of these clinics that look like were reputable before we got there. So we had a plan. Somebody gets sick, this is the closest place we're going to go to. Um, and, you know, the GPS would take us right there. So. Yeah, that's a fantastic idea. So, like, so far, big picture, I've just really heard you saying, if you're going to a place like Africa, especially if you're going to go be remote, you're going to you know, be overlanding and exploring some of that part of the country, um, do your homework, right? Do the research. And I will put a lot of links to the resources you mentioned in the show notes so people have those to draw from. Yeah, exactly. And I think, you know, a lot of us nowadays will travel with a satellite messenger or, a, you know, some kind of an emergency beacon. And I think that uh, that does 
maybe it puts you at ease a little bit too much. I think it's easy to be complacent and say, oh, I'm, I'm going to go somewhere remote. I've got my satellite beacon. I don't really need to do much more research. I'm just going to hit the button. But uh, you'll be so much better prepared if you can do a little research before you go. When I was doing my research before we left, uh, you know, some of the places uh, will actually have a website, you know, that tells about their healthcare facility. Uh, a lot of them had Facebook pages where they just, you know, and then they got photos of the clinic and pictures of people who work there. And you can get a pretty good idea, you know, and have a visual on does this place look reputable or not just by seeing some some photos and reading the comments on their Facebook page. Yeah. That's a great idea. Yeah. Makes a lot of sense. Um, so you, you mentioned this a little bit earlier, and I want to dig into it some, and that's uh, water, water supplies, drinking water, water purification in this part of the world. Um, you know, here around Montana, North Dakota, you're largely dealing with like Jardia and things like that. Um, but when you're heading to Africa, what are you thinking in terms of drinking water and purification? Great question. Um, you know, there, you know, drinking water is a problem for everybody around the world. And so th there are, uh, you know, there are a lot of local solutions more in fact than I thought, you know, I thought we were going to be filtering and pumping all of our water out of streams, but Hey, you know, the people there need clean drinking water too. And so a lot of these places that had, you know, commercial centers in the, you know, the city center of any size had a place that was, you could buy bottled water, uh, buy it by the gallon jug. And so we use that to fill the tanks on the Alucab systems. We also had the ability to, you know, get water from a stream if we needed to, you know, you know the solution we had there was a, a filter and a UV, a UV system, which is really that that guzzle h2o system guzzle h2o yep you throw a throw one end of the hose in the in the stream and you pump it through and the other one goes into your uh, clean water holding tank and you know when you're thinking about water there's you know you the best way to describe water purification is thinking about what it is you're trying to filter out and then what is the what is the uh the weakness of the system that you're using and so um you know, in, in, in water, there are lots of things that can cause sickness. They're either viruses, which are very, very tiny and can pass through filters fairly easily. Uh, those are smaller than like 0.1 microns. Then you've got bacteria, which are bigger than that. You know, they're living organisms. They have cellular machinery inside and, uh, you know, they're not single, you know, they're not uh, tiny little viruses. And so those can a lot of times be filtered out by, a, you know, by a good filter. Um, and then cryptosporidium is even larger than that. That can be filtered out as well. The two larger organisms that are living things like bacteria and then cryptosporidium, which, is, which actually moves around uh, under the microscope and has uh, you know, parts that make it move. Uh, the bacteria and cryptosporidium uh, are susceptible to uh, you know, iodine or chlorine in different concentrations. Cryptosporidium is a little bit more difficult to kill, but UV light does a really good job. Um, and so, you know, the best way to do it is to use, use two systems. You know, if you're going to filter also use a SteriPen cause it gets viruses. If you're going to uh, treat your uh, water with chlorine or something like that, which, uh, will kill, uh, uh, all the living stuff you're going to want to use, uh, yeah, if you're going to use chlorine or 
iodine, you're still going to want to filter because it takes out some of the bad tastes and there are heavy metals and things like that that you want to filter out that a charcoal filter will do. And, uh, you know, the best thing is use two, use two of those three systems and then you'll almost always be good to go. Is that why you trust the guzzle even in Africa? Because I, as I understand it, there's a filter and the UV component to that. Yes, but the other thing to remember is that the guzzle, uh, it's got a lot of mechanical components, components, right? Mm -hmm. It needs a battery. It needs a pump. Everything needs to be sealed. It's got a UV light that has a bulb that we had some trouble with. One of the, one of the uh, glass uh, covers over a bulb broke and was giving us some trouble. And so for things that are rattling around in a truck mm -hmm. for prolonged periods of time, if you're if you're depending on filters and UV light, you're going to want to have something else that can shake around for a year and not be affected. And that would be things like iodine or chlorine tabs. Okay. You know, I've got a, I have a uh, um, Lifesaver jerry can, right? I've used it for a couple of years here just in my own camping setup. I went out to use it this summer and I pumped it up with air and it had a crack in the can and water was shooting out the side. So if you, if you can't pump it up, and use the pressure, then uh, it's unusable. So the important thing is to consider the weaknesses of the system that you're using and then have a contingency plan. Yeah, that, that seems to be a, a recurring message I hear with purification is if you can have two or three different methods, you know, have, have the backup for the backup. Yeah, SteriPens are great. They kill everything, right? But they depend on batteries, they've got a bulb, and then the water has to be crystal clear because it depends on light getting through. So if your water is really turbid, SteriPen doesn't work. And then a lot of times, you know, water that's coming from the natural environment is going to have some bad taste, maybe some sulfurs and things like that. And the SteriPen doesn't do anything for that. So in that case, combining it with a filter is a really good idea. Yeah, filter first and then hit it with the SteriPen. Yep. Makes sense. And what about when you were in Africa, what did you all find for water sources to draw from with the guzzle, say? Like, were there rivers, springs? Um, I was with the group for uh, three weeks, and we were able to find uh, fresh water and fill our tanks every time we ran low. Hmm. So, you know, we left Johannesburg. We had a trailer behind the Sequoia that was full of water. And, uh, you know, we never got so low that we had to pump from a river. I'm not sure if the group has had to do that since I left or not. We were prepared to, but we didn't have to. Okay, yeah, just uh, it would seem to me there would be ample water supplies in a, in a region like that. But, uh, you know, just um, just wondering what that actually looked like, boots on the ground. Yeah, and, you know, there are, I was, I was surprised continuously about the number of other overlanders that were traveling some of these back roads. I mean, we'd be in the middle of nowhere on a two track, like a prairie trail, and you'd see a cloud of dust coming over the hill. And, you know, it's a South African guy and his family, and they're in a, they're in a land cruiser. And, uh, you know, they got some jerry cans on the roof and a rooftop tent, and they're doing, they do this every weekend. And yeah, kind of like if we would do out here in Montana or Dakota or somewhere. They're, they're not all filtering water from the streams, you know, they're, they're making their stop strategically and, you know, filling up with fresh water. Uh, <laughs> gotcha. yeah. Find your next adventure with Onyx Off-Road, the ultimate off-road navigation tool. Onyx has been a longtime partner and they are getting ready for a pretty exciting map update. Improved trail labeling by ride type, highlighted OHV riding zones, 
and trail hotspots, making finding your next adventure even easier. Pairing this with offline maps and private land data, this is the ultimate tool that fits right in your pocket. Download Onyx Off-Road today and use code XOVERLAND20 to save 20% off your yearly membership. So, okay, another topic. Um, you're putting together your medical kit to take with you abroad. Um, it's a lot easier, I would imagine, if you're staying stateside. Uh, I'm wondering what it looks like to fly overseas and have these things go through airport security. You know, what kind of pharmaceuticals can you legally bring into another country? Like what kind of challenges you face there? If you're taking prescription drugs or really any pills of any kind, they should have the original manufacturer's um, label with them. And if it's a prescription drug, it should probably be prescribed in your name and have the name of the physician there. There are some rules about transporting narcotics and controlled substances over international borders. And so if you're taking care of a group and taking medicines for a group, that's a whole nother topic about, you know, does your medical license even have any validity in another country? But for the individual who's just planning to travel, um, you know, if you have a couple of those medicines and they're prescribed to you from your doctor and it's a small quantity, you're probably not going to get hassled too much. If you're bringing along multiple bottles and somebody could question that. Okay. Yeah. And uh, what kind of medications did you pack for this type of trip that would be more generic? Not necessarily prescription, but just over-the-counter stuff for a trip to Africa. Yeah, you know, uh, Tylenol and uh, an anti-inflammatory for aches and pains and uh, something for diarrhea like Imodium or uh, Pepto-Bismol. Um, you know, an antihistamine for allergies like, uh, you know, the non-sedating ones are the best when you're when you're going to be driving. So Claritin and Zyrtec as opposed to Benadryl. Um, uh, you know, something for nausea. There are some over-the-counters available. I think I brought some Zofran, which is a prescription one that just melts in your mouth. Um, you know, some antibiotic ointment and, you know, that about covers your over-the-counter stuff. And then, you know, for prescriptions, a couple different kinds of antibiotics and maybe write on the bottle what you would use them for. Mm -hmm. uh, those lists are all available online for recommendations and stuff. Yeah, and you could probably work with your own personal doctor to get some antibiotics and things like that if they know where you're heading. Yep, you can do that. And there are companies that specialize in doing that. Um, a couple of years ago, I interviewed the owner of uh, Duration Health, and he's a guy that uh, you know offers this service. He's got a licensed physician in 50 states, and you can get a uh, you know a telehealth visit with him and talk about where you're going. And you know, for for people that maybe aren't able to get to a travel clinic, there are lots of options like that that are pretty legit and knowledgeable and any one of them is fine. Oh man, that would be super useful, you know, mm -hmm. to be able to get those prescriptions. Someone who just spell it or specializes and you can telehealth and just still get your prescriptions and go. I, I love that idea. Um, and then as far as the things you mentioned, all this generic kind of over the counter stuff, you pack that into a first aid kit, pack it in your suitcase and you're not having any trouble traveling with that stuff. Nope. As long as everything is labeled. You'll probably be okay. Okay. Uh, what about hardware? You know, like for your medical kit, what uh, beyond medications, right? Like, are you packing Sam splints and wraps or, you know, what kind of things are you packing for a trip like this? Yep. So XO travels with a couple of pretty nice kits. And then uh, I brought a lot of the 
pharmaceuticals and advanced stuff along with me when I traveled. So it was kind of a combination of the two. No, I, I think that every uh, every vehicle should have some kind of a little boo-boo kit in the first aid or in the glove box, you know, so you're not raiding the medical kit every time there's a little owie, just something that's quick and convenient and easy to grab. Yeah. And then I like to keep some trauma stuff separate. You know, there are lots of nice little uh, IFAC individual first aid kit pouches with which have some, you know, life-saving stuff in there, like a, a hemostatic bandage and a tourniquet and, uh, you know, maybe a SAM splint for orthopedic injuries and stuff that you would need for like a roadside accident. Uh, and then, you know, an expedition medical kit can usually be deep sixed in the back somewhere. That's going to have all of your, you know, your prescriptions and, uh, you know, uh, tools and some diagnostic instruments and, and things like that, that you're probably not going to need access to uh, unless somebody gets really sick. Uh, put that in the back so it's not getting pulled out every time you unpack. Yeah. I remember you talking about that overall strat in that first podcast we did. And it made so much sense to me as, as a former guide, like people had asked me, hey, did you ever have any big injuries and this and that? I was like, actually, it was all just cuts and scrapes and ibuprofen and, you know, the simple things. So like just to have that boo-boo kit as you described it and then the trauma kit, you know, somewhere else that's accessible, but not going to be, you don't have to be going to it all the time. It just makes a lot of sense. Yeah. You know, the, uh, and, you know, the larger the kit is, the harder it is to keep organized and know where stuff is. And so, you know, that's, that's a kit. You're going to drag it out and you're going to have some time to sift through there and figure out what pouch you put stuff in. The trauma kit, the thing that you keep behind your headrest, I really think that that's something that everybody in the group should know where it is and you should be able to zip it open and everything is in the same compartment in every vehicle. You know, a needle for a pneumothorax, a, a tourniquet, a hemostatic bandage, uh, maybe an Israeli bandage and a cravat for uh, for your arm and some, uh, you know, some athletic tape, those kind of things. Uh, and that should be organized and it should only be opened when there's a serious trauma. That way things are, you know, things are not lost or missing. Yeah, man, that makes sense. And speaking of like, you know, things that don't get open very often, um, certainly after I crested past 40, John, like the years go by a lot faster, it seems to me. And so the expiration dates the same on my med kits when I revisit them. Yeah. How important is it, you know, when you're looking through your kits and it's like, well, this is, you know, dated, expired a year ago or two years ago. Uh, is that accurate or overly conservative? You know, how long will those things last? Yeah. Every pharmaceutical that's sold in the U.S. needs to have an expiration date stamped on there. And there have been some really good studies done where they've, you know, looked to see, you know, years after the expiration date, how long... How long are these things actually, how long will they have bioavailable medications in them? Right. And most of the ones that are in pill form are good for quite a while. It's real hard to give yeah. a specific number, but uh, you know, quite a while, multiple freeze-thaw cycles, and they're pretty stable. Um, liquids are a little bit different only because when they fluctuate in temperature, some of the medicines can kind of precipitate out uh, as a salt. And so if you're carrying IV medicines or intramuscular things like epinephrine that you'd give as a shot, you need to be able to pay a little bit more attention to, uh, uh, to expiration dates. And then gels and creams and things like that are pretty good too. They can precipitate a little bit too, but they can be worked back into, 
into solution. You just got to be careful with those because they could break open and make a mess. Okay. Yeah. Well, that's telling me that for a lot of things in there, I'm probably okay for a while past expiration date. Um, and that, you know, it's expensive, that stuff. And you resupply it, you want to have it, of course, but, um, you know, if something is going to last longer, it, it would definitely save people a few bucks. Yeah. You know, if you're going to be carrying the same uh, pills and prescriptions for quite a while on multiple trips, uh, I suggest that you get them out of the pill bottles and get us get uh, some zippered medication pouches and put the pills in there, you know, peel the label off the bottle and stick it in there. Because when you carry your pills around in a bottle and they shake, sometimes they can disintegrate in there and then you don't really know how much you're getting. Whereas right. if it's all packed tightly in a little uh, pouch of some kind, uh, then they don't shake around and break. Uh, awesome pro tip. So there was something too, you were talking about uh, just medications you'd bring and one of them was Imodium and that made me think, I need to ask him about foodborne illnesses. We talked about waterborne illnesses. We were traveling to uh, you know, a less developed country, just different part of the world, remote travel. Uh, how, do you, how do you manage that? How do you, you know, know if your food's safe and what do you do there? Your food needs to be cooked. You know, if you're going to buy stuff from the grocery store, it should be cooked to a, an internal temperature. There are some charts that tell you, you know, pork, chicken, beef, how hot to cook it. And the reason for that is because it kills the stuff that lives in there. Um, uh, fruits and vegetables should probably be peeled or washed. Uh, you know, you could put a couple drops of chlorine or something in and then wash your produce with it or peel it. Uh, and then, you know, prepackaged foods. You know, there's a, the whole world has a problem with uh, obesity because we eat too much prepackaged food, you know, uh, carbohydrates and candy and stuff like that. But most of that stuff is pretty safe to, pretty safe to eat. Yeah. yeah. And then, you know, yeah. when somebody does get sick, a lot of these things are transmitted uh, fecal oral. So, you know, you go to the bathroom, you have a bowel movement, you don't do a good job washing your hands afterwards. And then the rest, then the person comes back to the truck and they're sticking their hands in your beef jerky bag. So um, <laughs> really important that when somebody does get sick, that you, everybody works together to help make sure that that person is, uh, you know, taking care of themselves to avoid you from getting sick. You know, and that's another thing. I mean, we stopped at some gas stations there and you'd go in to use the bathroom. And I knew, I knew that I had entered the, the Africa zone in my mind when, you know, I went in, did my business at a gas station. I looked over and there's no toilet paper. And so, you know, you hop out to the, to the sink and there's no soap. And so you go back to the toilet bowl and take the lid off and then rinse your hands oh. off in the water that's in the, the tank of the toilet. You know, that's when I knew that I had finally gotten in the zone after about a week and a half. That's you know, having some things for toileting in the door handles of your vehicle, you know, some toilet paper or a nice, uh, you know, when you don't get to shower for a few days, it's really nice to use some kind of a wet baby wipe when you go to the bathroom and then having some alcohol gel or a bar of soap in the door that everybody has access to. Yeah. That's a really useful pro tip, even for wandering around the West I found, because you, you think, oh, okay, there's a, you know, fish wildlife and parks outhouse. We're set. And you go in there and there's no toilet paper and there's, nothing to clean your hands with. So, you know, some wipes, some hand, hand sani, extra toilet paper around. It's always been a good thing in my adventure. Yeah. But you know, and a big picture item there I picked up from you just now too, is just hygiene. 
as far as foodborne illnesses go, just take, making sure you're taking care of hygiene, which would apply if you're in Africa or you're in Montana. Sure it does. And, you know, sometimes in the ER I'll see uh, skin abscesses and, you know, sometimes they are caused by just not being uh, clean enough. And so really in today's day and age, with all these products available, there's no excuse to be stinky on a, an expedition. You know, uh, there's plenty of little shower pouches and things that you can use. And, you know, there's nothing manly about uh, being the guy who smells the most. So, you know, every couple of days you can be kind of cleaning yourself a little bit just for the sake of your teammates. Don't be that guy who reaches into the ice for the cocktail with his hands, like you just described, or the you know the cookie jar, whatever. The yeah, everybody, bag. Knows, everybody knows who that person is. Yeah. That's right, man. You, sir, you have your own beef jerky bag, and nobody else is going to touch it. Oh man! So you know, the, another thing that just coming to mind for me with uh, a place like Africa that's different. Say, I mean, we from a lot of places around here. You know, the number of different animals, creepy crawlies, possibly like venomous snakes, um, other, you know, biting insects, anything like that. Did, did that cross your mind? Were you concerned about some like mambas or those those type of things? In that part of the, the world, there are puff adders and black mambas, among other things. Uh, you know, one of them is a pit viper a crotalid, member of the crotalid family. The other is a member of the elapidae family. And, uh, you know, the crotalids will cause, uh, you know, tissue, tissue uh, necrosis, and it's a toxic venom. Cells split open and tissue dies and you get really sick like that. The elapidae that secrete a neurotoxin, you know, after, you know, they don't have the fangs of a pit viper. They kind of grind their venom into the wound. And, you know, you start getting some paresthesias and numbness and tingling. And then you get these uh, facial symptoms, you know, facial droop, and you can't open your eyes real well. And then it leads to respiratory depression. Both of them are fatal. And, you know, that was a worry too, especially when walking around in the bush. We did some bush walks with a guide and uh, just making sure you're careful of where you step and don't reach into the wood pile without giving it a kick first and then shaking out your shoes in the morning. Uh, are really important to making sure you just, you don't want to contact those animals. Or if you do, you want to appreciate them from a distance. They're difficult to treat because, uh, uh, you know, here in the United States, all of our poisonous snakes are covered by one antivenom called uh, Crofab. Works for every poisonous snake here, except the ones that live in zoos. And so, uh, but in Africa and other places around the world, uh, there, you know, the specific anti-venoms are specific to the snake. And so if you can't identify the snake and tell the people at the hospital what bit you, it's really difficult to know how to treat it. Mm -hmm. uh, and then the, the venom, the uh, anti-venoms are more dangerous too. Ours here are made synthetically in a lab. They're pretty safe. A lot of the ones in foreign countries, they're made by you know, giving the venom to a horse or a sheep, and then you allow that animal to make antibodies against the venom, and then you collect it back from the animal. And so when you administer it to a human, then it has a higher chance of causing a life-threatening allergic reaction. And so, uh, God, you just really want to avoid the snakes when traveling outside the U.S. And then, you know, there are other wild animals. I mean, we were, you know, we saw lots of hippos and elephants, um, 
Uh, we got to see a predator snacking on a prey one day that was pretty cool. And uh, just keeping your distance and appreciating those animals from a little ways away. Man, the elephants just impressed me so much. They are so quiet. And they said, oh, if you go for a bushwalk, you need to be careful about the elephants because they'll sneak up on you. And you're like, what? It was unbelievable. I mean, a couple of times we were uh, 15 or 20 feet from an elephant. And they, you cannot hear them walk. Their feet are so soft. You get a whole herd of elephants coming by, and it's like they tiptoe. It's amazing. Incredible something that size could be that quiet. And, and just this is just a fun aside, John, but I'm wondering, you know, being that I live a half hour from Yellowstone Park, we get a news story almost every week as somebody getting butted by a bison or, you know, who knows what with a wild animal. But a lot of that uh, friend of mine just went through the park and he was like, I just can't believe how close everyone still keeps trying to get to these animals. In Africa, do you see that or are people more respectful? I think people are pretty respectful. You know, I got to I got to say that this one time we were pretty close to these elephants. Um, it was at a place that was uh, special for elephant viewing. And, you know, in between us and the elephants, they had all these little, best way I could describe them is a little concrete pyramid about, uh, you know, maybe four inches tall, that's sharp on the top. And they had these things laid all over the ground. And apparently the elephants, you know, feet are fairly sensitive because they're soft. And so these things had learned over the years just to not walk out where these little concrete spikes were because it, it hurt their feet. So, you know, it's not like we were out in the bush and walked up to the elephant. We, we would never do that. This, right. You know, there are other, other tourists at this place that were able to get pretty close to this elephant watering hole. So, yeah. yeah. I, I mean, Africa, they the countries there have been managing tourists with their animals for, you know, decades and decades. So I imagine they've gotten pretty good at it by now. Well, you know, just bouncing back around to what you were saying about reptiles and snakes um, and how, you know, prevention really is the best cure there, um, given the, 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 the possible mortality levels, too, of something like a black mamba. Um, you know, living in the West, we have crotalids, right? Rattlesnakes or crotalids? Yep. Like you were saying. Um, and, you know, I've been, knock on wood, but running around Montana and eastern Montana, for years and years and years with bird dogs, all kinds of things. But we take a lot of preventative measures to prevent a snake problem, you know, getting bit, whether we're walking through the grass or we're reaching down for something. And so far, so good. And we've seen a lot of rattlesnakes. Um, do you think it sounds like in that part of the world, like a lot of others, if you're just cautious like that, and you're mindful, you got a pretty good chance of avoiding the bite? Yeah, you just got to travel smartly. You know, it's, it's not a reason to not go there. You know, it's just a risk that you have to manage. I mean, you don't go on a bushwalk wearing your Tevas. You know, you wear some leather shoes and, you know, try, you know, if you're in brush that's, you can't see your feet, then you should probably be wearing some longer pants and, you know, moving slowly enough that things can get out of the way. Yeah, there you go. Moving slowly enough that things have a chance to move. And then knowing that, you know, if you, if you do get a bite from something like that, you need to head to medical care. You know, there are some of the bites are dry but you don't wait around and see what happens. You know, if you get bitten, it's time to go. That's an evacuate. That's an evacuate situation. Yeah. Gotcha. Well, this has been super helpful. I, I hope for people who are thinking of going to Africa and more broadly, just thinking of doing an international trip to somewhere less developed, possibly equatorial things they should be thinking about resources they have to prepare for such a trip 
Um, do you think, did I miss anything here? Is there anything on your mind that you'd want to make sure to cover here before we end the podcast? Uh, yeah, you know, I think it's worthwhile to mention uh, two other things. One of them is uh, some of these travel books like, uh, you know, Lonely Planet and Photos and things like that, that you know, are, you know, they're, you know, so they're published and then nothing's updated for a while, right? But they do contain some pretty good information. And I think, you know, starting out your travel plans a couple months ahead of time with a good guidebook is a pretty nice way to get an overall uh, understanding of how the country operates. I did that before this trip. And, you know, a lot of those books do a really good job kind of summarizing the history of the country, why the government is the way it is. And I think that, uh, you know, we're there for adventure, right? But it's also important important to appreciate the culture and the people who are there and taking some time to read a little bit about those before you go will make you a more well-rounded traveler. And then, uh, you know, the U.S. State Department website has uh, great information about, uh, you know, that can help you understand some of the laws of foreign countries. When we travel, we're guests in their country. And so, you know, respecting their cultures and obeying their laws and knowing where to turn if you get into legal trouble is really important too. So like, you know, in addition to marking where some of these clinics were on our maps, uh, you know, we had marked out like, where's the closest consulate? who can help you if you get in a motor vehicle accident and get thrown in jail. Uh, you can access all that through a state through the State Department website. And then a lot of times there will be a link to the embassy, the U.S. embassy in the country that you're going. You should probably spend some time snooping around on the embassy's page. You know, that leads me to thinking, too, about something you mentioned. We were having a pre-conversation for this podcast, and that was things like medical insurance and um, evacuation insurance if you needed yeah. it and you know when when do you want to get you know, flighted out of a country uh you know i'm thinking like meta flights and but what's going yeah. on with that side of things yeah that's a tough thing to summarize you know uh we had uh, uh, uh ashley and richard are canadians right right and so canadians get uh, universal health care and they were able to take out some kind of a policy or rider through their national mm -hmm health insurance that would cover them as travelers for a certain number of days a year. You couldn't live overseas forever on that. You have to come back to Canada every so often, but you know, for a small fee, you know, they'll have that on there, but they're not going to take your Canadian insurance card in the bush in Botswana. So you better be prepared to swipe a credit card or produce some Pula or some Rand to pay cash for some of these services ahead of time and then collect all of your receipts and bring those home and submit them for uh, for reimbursement. Uh, our health insurance uh, had the same kind of a thing. I could take out a little policy for traveling, but you you know you get that reimbursed when you get home. And uh, you know expatriation services or repatriation. I forget what the word is, but uh, you know the Canadian policy. I think it would get them home as soon as possible from a hospital. But a lot of that doesn't mean that they're going to come and rescue you in the Okavanga Delta, right? That's something different. Health insurance would take care of you once you got to a healthcare facility. But getting to the healthcare facility is another issue. So if you don't have 100% confidence in your traveling companions to get you there, then taking out some kind of a rescue service like you know, Global Rescue or uh, in Botswana, there's uh, Okavanga 
Delta Air Rescue that has a helicopter service. They're able to come and get you. And that's something that you pay for ahead of time. It's like a, I forget if it's a subscription or a donation. And then for that, they would get you to a hospital if you needed it. Uh, you got to do your research before you go. Yeah, that sounds important. Um, even, you know, if you have a partner or two, just like what, what are your options there for evacuation and what can you line up ahead of time to help pay for it? And just making sure that your own insurer is willing to get you from the airport in whatever country back home stateside. I think the in, the Garmin InReach has a service that you can buy with that as well. And so in retrospect, I, I think I had I think I had two of them. I think I took out I took out Global Rescue for this trip. But then I also had uh, my inReach has a policy too that I just have for it comes along with the aviation thing that I subscribe to. So I had two. I'm not sure which one I would have used, <laughs> but they were both on speed dial. Yeah. 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 Well, I'm wondering too, this begs a question for me, and that is um, what kind of injuries, illnesses for you are red flags? To, to get out of that less developed healthcare system and back stateside, or at least to somewhere in a more developed country. Yep. This is why it's super important to take a wilderness first aid class before you travel to some of these areas, because that's exactly what you're going to learn about in a class like that. You know, a regular first aid class from the Red Cross, is going to teach you to, uh, you know, put on a splint or, you know, pack a wound and then go to the hospital. But uh, wilderness first aid class is going to teach you when do you need to go. And so things like, you know, any kind of an orthopedic injury that compromises neurovascular status distally, like the, you know, the pulses or your loss of sensation or the ability to move, that's a big problem. Um, fractures, yeah, you, you, you can manage a fracture and get it set a couple of, you know, get it operated on a couple of weeks or a month from now. Or six months from now, they can an orthopedic surgeon can re-break the fracture and reset it. Yeah. But an yeah. open fracture is a different issue because they're at high risk for infection. So open fractures need to be evacuated. And then, uh, you know, like we talked a little bit previously about some diagnostic instruments to take mm -hmm. with you. Uh, you know, uh, fee being able to diagnose a fever in a tropical area is a big thing. Fever should really be seen in a clinic, and then. Uh, or at a hospital, and then a pulse oximeter that you stick on your finger, you know, it, uh, if you have an, an injury to the chest or an infection, and now your oxygen levels are low, that's really difficult to manage in the field too. So a couple of tips there, a good physical exam, a pulse oximeter, and a thermometer, um, you know, are, are things that uh, you would need while you're going to, you know, to help you decide when to evacuate. Yep. And then stroke, stroke and heart attack symptoms and things like that. Those are all covered in a, a wilderness first aid class. Yeah. And those are the things you want to try to get home for, get back stateside for. Exactly. Yep. Loss of vision is always an emergency. Mm. Um, yeah. Yeah. We should, we should talk about those sometime as well. Sounds good. Sounds good. Well, any other things you want to touch on here? We've uh, you know been discussing this for an hour or so, and I, I think you've shared a lot of valuable, useful information. I got one other thing I'll throw in there real quick, and that is the uh, that is the capability that telemedicine adds to the adventure traveler oh, in today's day and age. So you know uh, we had a Starlink on one of the trucks, right? And 
I got home. The group was still there. In fact, they were getting close to the western edge of Namibia. And I got a text at three o'clock one morning and they had come across uh, an injured person in the middle of nowhere. And they wondered if I could do a telehealth visit. And so I got up at three o'clock in the morning and came down to my office and logged onto my computer. And here's a crystal clear image of the person on the other end of the world. And there's no delay. And, you know, I was able to walk them through an exam of this person and help them, uh, you know, provide some temporizing care for this person so they could, uh, you know, have their suffering relieved a little bit and then advise them on when to go to the hospital. And geez, uh, if you can travel with a device like that or have the ability to reach out and ask a professional, it adds a huge element of safety. I was thinking about asking you about technology and, you know, first aid for a trip like this. And boom, there we are. Like, yeah, I know we have a Starlink now. Uh, and telehealth just gives you the ability to to reach a, you know, a doctor in a developed country, a doctor you trust, possibly even your own doctor. Um, mm -hmm. And that was a technology that just wasn't there for travelers probably even yep. 10 years ago. Yeah, or even five. I think it was during COVID where tel where telehealth really, really took off. And some of that too, you could do right through your phone if you have the signal, right? Like you don't need a Starlink necessarily if you have enough cell service. Yeah, you're probably right. You know, I, I FaceTime with my family or used WhatsApp yeah. uh, a couple of times when we were, you know, when we had cell phone signal. So even for, I would say, you know, if you're in a remote area in the States, and you do have Starlink or you have some way of communicating and you know enough cell signal to get telehealth, that's an option. Yeah, that's one of the cool things about having a diverse group of friends that like to do these things together. You know, if I had a question about, uh, you know, if I was going to Montana fly fishing next week, I'd probably call you and get some advice <laughs> even at 10 o'clock at night. Or if I had a question about a land cruiser, I'd call Kurt. And uh, you know, if you had a question, you'd give me a call. So when you travel, uh, you build camaraderie and work as a team, and then you can kind of tap into the, you know, the expertise of your group of friends. And that is really fun because none of us can be an expert at everything. Absolutely. I, I think that that just, you know, speaks volumes to having a team, working with a team, traveling with a team, and just having people on call. Uh, even when you're in the field, a phone call in the moment, hey, you know, Dr. John, here's what's going on. And I would hope that you'd be like, I'm on the stream, Jimmy. They're, these fish are eating. Here's what's going on. Can you diagnose what this is and match the hatch for me, please? Fantastic. <laughs> I love it. Well, you mentioned coming to Montana, and you and I have done two virtual podcasts. I can hardly wait till we do one in person. So you need to get out here. I'll come up for the next one. <laughs> Sounds good. John, thank you so much for joining us. And thanks, everybody, for joining us on the Exoverland podcast. We'll catch you next time. Thank you so much for joining us. And if you enjoyed the podcast, please subscribe and leave us a review. It really helps. We appreciate your support. And until next time, stay adventurous. Stay adventurous.